Hi, St. Patrick Catholic community. My name is Brian. Welcome to the conversation. Earlier this summer, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Thomas Groom, the author and world-renowned scholar. He's a professor of theology and religious education at Boston College. He and I had a conversation about what it truly means to live this Christian life. We hope you enjoy. Um, well, you mentioned the shared Christian praxis approach to educating in faith, to catechesis, evangelization, and so on. And I suppose that's something that's uh, particularly associated with my own, with my own work and uh, over the years. And maybe if I give a little of the history of it, it might, it might make some sense of how I stumbled on the idea. And the first person I heard talking about a praxis approach to education of any kind uh, was Paulo Freire. And I was privileged to meet and get to know Freire. We, we, I was honored to teach with him on two occasions. We co-taught course, summer courses at Boston College. I got deeply in, 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 in interested in his work and I kept wondering, what did he mean by this word praxis? And I, I traced it back, as he does, to Aristotle. And basically, Aristotle outlined three ways of knowing. Uh, the theoria, the more theoretical, the praxis way of knowing, which is more from life, the experiential, the relational, and then poiesis, the third way of knowing, which was the more imaginative, creative, the, the, the kind of, uh, the aesthetic, shall we say. Now, very briefly, what happened was that theoria triumphed, read, you know, critical reason, the, the theoretical, and praxis as a way of knowing and poiesis as a way of knowing were simply dismissed. Descartes said that poiesis and imagination would inevitably lead us astray. So that the way to know was to know the theory of something first and then to apply it to practice. And I never particularly liked that because very often our theories don't apply or we know a whole bunch of stuff in our heads, but we don't know how to put it to work. And in the midst of that, I began to, uh, so basically what Freire wanted to do was to put all of the ways of knowing back together and basically say that the primary way of knowing is from life and from life experience and from relationality and so on. But we also need the theoretical, uh, the, the reason, the, 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 the content, as it were, uh, of the tradition, and then to put them together creatively and imaginatively. So that was Freire's proposal. And in the midst of that, I began to notice something extraordinary, uh, and very few other people that I know of had noticed it, and that is in how Jesus was actually teaching. Now, our scripture scholars and the church itself put a great deal of emphasis on what Jesus taught and pay very little attention to how he was teaching. But as a good catechist and religious educator, I began to notice and that he constantly began, I'm exaggerating slightly, but he, he didn't all the time, but almost every time, all of his teaching moments, especially in the synoptic gospels with the parables, but in John's gospel as well, with the different symbols of what he was using there, of wedding feasts and all this kind of stuff, that he constantly began with people's own lives. Yeah. Uh, their own reality, their own realidad, as Freire would say, what was going on around them. And so he'd say, you know, the reign of God is like uh, people sorting fish. The reign of God is like a farmer never up to sow some seed. The reign of God is like a person hiring workers in a vineyard. The reign of God is like a woman baking bread. Uh, and then he'd say, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. You know, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There was a, there was a family who had two sons. One of them up and says, hey, I'm out of here. All of it, real stuff experiential stuff for people's lives uh, and stuff that they were coming to know. So he got people to stop and to look at their own lives uh, and to do this very intently. 
But he also began at times to get them to think critically about their lives. In a sense, Freire would talk about this as conscientization, but, but to reflect on them probingly, not just to take them for granted. And sometimes he turned people's lives upside down. So the Samaritan turns out to be the neighbor, totally against their cultural expectation. Uh, the prodigal is welcomed home, and he never should have been welcomed home, totally against Mosaic law. He'd forfeited his birthright. Uh, Lazarus goes home to God, and the rich man goes off to hell, or Hades, as the scriptures put it. Uh, and in the world of the time, wealth was seen as a blessing from God. Poverty was a curse. Jesus turns that upside down. And you can go on and on with, with all the ways that... that, that uh, uh, that he was, in a sense, getting people to think in a whole new horizon. And then the horizon of all of it, of course, was the horizon of God's reign. In other words, he wasn't just a discussion leader. He got people to stop and look at their lives. But then into the midst of their lives, he proclaimed his gospel and, and did it with authority, as Mark says, this great gospel of the reign of God and how to live for the reign of God now and all this kind of stuff. And um, so he brought them to the faith. In other words, he began with their lives, but then brought them to the faith, to, to, to the gospel he was proclaiming, and to their own faith tradition, that, that he wasn't going to do away a jot or a tittle of the, of the, of the, uh, of the mosaic, of the Jewish scriptures, until they were fulfilled. So deep respect for the tradition, and what he was proclaiming as a new, a new story and a new vision for the reign of God. But then having engaged people's lives and introduced them to this reign of God and faith and all this kind of, he then invited them to embrace the two and put them together as a lived discipleship. He invited them to come follow me, was his constant invitation, always as an invitation, never as a mandate, never said, get in behind me or you're all going to hell. No, it was always an invitation to faith. So I, I recognize this amazing um, dynamic pedagogy uh, of him bringing, uh, I describe it later after writing many books about it, it really boils down to bringing life to faith and bringing faith to life. And he did it constantly. And as you just indicated in your opening question, he does it throughout his whole, his whole public ministry. There's even times when he does it in just one, in one verse. Uh, he says, look at the birds of the air. Now you can imagine people listening, looking up and looking at the birds of the air. And then there's a reflective question. They neither reap nor sow. And they said, people say, that, yeah, they don't reap or sow. Then he says, and this is, this is the faith. And yet God, their father, feeds them and people have to say yeah god feeds the bird to the air and then he asks the great question asking them to make it their own to see for themselves to take it to heart aren't you of more value than many sparrows in other words life to faith and to bring that faith back into life again but it's writ large on the road to emmaus now very briefly because i could go on and on about this uh, it's writ large in the road to emmaus this stranger who joins their company and walks along with them. It's in Luke 24, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Pope Francis now constantly cites it. There's a new catechetical directory that just came out. I just got my copy yesterday. So I need about 20 pages read. Already he's into the road to Emmaus because he wants us to model the kind of accompaniment the way this stranger joins their company and walks along with them. That's what we have to do with our young people to bring them to faith. But the, the stranger says to them, hey, and you can imagine these poor traumatized disciples stumbling out of Jerusalem Easter Sunday morning, heartbroken. Their beloved Jesus had just suffered this horrendous death. 
and, and lost all, and without all hope, they admit it. We'd, we, we were hoping, so they've lost all hope. And he joins their company and walks along with them. And he says to them, what are you discussing as you go upon you? In other words, tell me about your life. What's going on? What's happening? What's your story? And he, they say to him, are you the only one who doesn't know the things that went on in Jerusalem these past few days? He says to them, what things? Now, I think that's one of the most amazing questions ever asked in the history of Christian catechesis. Because nobody knew better than he what went on in Jerusalem these past few days. But he wants them to tell him. He wants them to tell him their story, which they do. All the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet that powerful in the eyes of God and all the people. And then their shattered vision. We were hoping. He was the one who set Israel free. And besides all this, some women have gone to the tomb and find it empty and hear that he's alive and well and resurrected. But we're basically getting out of there. In a sense, he waits to get their own story and shattered their own lives on the table before he begins then into the more instructional uh, didactic moment. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, they interpreted, they interpreted for them every passage of scripture they refer to himself. So no wonder they're on the road all day. I mean, he read the whole scriptures with it because, and it's only seven miles journey, so they should have gotten there by now. <laughs> but instead, he, he opens the scriptures and explained that the Messiah had to suffer so as to enter into his glory. So there's a dialectic now. They were hoping for a political Messiah. He says, well, it was really a suffering Messiah that came, which is probably why you're missing the whole point. But the extraordinary thing is, he acts as if he's going on further. They press him to stay. And that offer of hospitality in Luke often brings the gift. And sure enough, he sits. And I love it. When he sits with them at table, he, in many ways, he takes the initiative, which would have been unusual for a guest in a Jewish home of the time. But he takes the initiative uh, and he takes the bread as the exact same four verbs as at the Last Supper. It says he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. And with that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And the Greek there is epigenoskain, which means they were deeply bonded with him. They didn't say, oh, sorry, it yourself didn't recognize you. They meant they were deeply bonded. They knew him in the marrow bone of their lives. Whereupon he vanishes. And people have often said to me, Tom, why would he vanish? Well, in some ways his work was done. They'd come to see for themselves. And of course, they, then they get up immediately and, and they say, oh, weren't our hearts burning inside of us as he explained the scriptures to us? And I suppose... As catechists, that's what we have to try to do, to get people's hearts to burn with this word of God uh, as he explained it to us, as he opened the scriptures for us. As the better, he wasn't really explaining it. He was opening the scriptures. The, the verb there is much closer to opening. He was opening the wisdom of the scriptures to them. And eventually they come to see for themselves. And of course, then they couldn't just toddle on to, uh, to uh, Ephesus. In a sense, when anybody comes to know the faith and to see for themselves that deeply, you, you have to go, they have to turn around in a sense and go back into Jerusalem and to rejoin the faith community. And many scholars say that these two disciples were more than likely running away. Uh, there was a strong tradition in uh, for the Romans when they executed a leader to pick a bunch of their followers and execute them as well. So they were getting out of Jerusalem probably before the same fate might befall them. Uh, but now they've come to see for themselves. They can't just 
go on to Emmaus. They, they have to turn. And they go back into the community, and I'm winding down here, uh, Brian. They go back into the community uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and they're greeted with, the Lord has been raised. It is true. He has appeared to Simon. Okay, so it's official now. Simon has seen. Why didn't they believe the women? You know, when the women came from the tomb. But they didn't know, but Simon has seen him, so it must be true now. But I love how the Jerusalem Bible ends this trans the, the translation of the next, of the closing verse. It says, and then they told their story of what had happened on the road and how they came to know him in the breaking of the bread. And in a sense, what happened on the road was very important. That The catechesis was really on the road as he explained the scriptures to them. And yet it was in the breaking of the bread. It was the bread of Eucharist, of course, but it was the bread of, of friendship, the bread of love, the bread of care, the bread of companionship, the bread of community, the bread of being together. There was in that that they came to recognize. And, and uh, but that's how they tell it. They said they told their story of what had happened on the road, but how they came to know him in the breaking of the bread. So I went on from there. I promised you I was winding down. Uh, but you asked me the wrong question, Brian. You know, this is the one that gets me going um, if you wanted a short response. Um, and, and then I began to develop this and, you know, grounded in the theoretical and philosophical and theological and epistemological and sociological sources and what have you. And then to implement it into children's curriculum, high school curriculum, adult curriculum, and so on. Um, and it has gone on from there. And it has also reached into other cultures in very significant ways. I just had an email this morning that uh, uh, one of my later books uh, had just been, trans just been translated into Korean. And uh, they've been using it, that approach. And I wondered when I first started reaching out into other cultures, whether or not is this a Western way of doing things? Um, because, uh, well, if you just take the Korean context, the teacher is like a guru, you know, the, in the Confucian tradition, uh, only the teacher speaks, uh, the student never speaks in the presence of the teacher. There's too much reverence for the teacher. And I wonder this dialogical, conversational approach, would it fly in a traditional Confucian culture like uh, Korea? But apparently they, they, it's very effective and they've translated, this is the third of my books they've translated, into Korean, and it, it's been translated into, I don't mean to be pretentious, but into many languages. I'm just mentioning that only because it seems to be a kind of an indigenous human way of learning. Like when you mentioned your two little girls, uh, what prepared you for parenting? Well, you probably did read some books, Brian. You probably read a book or two. We did. But really, it was in the experience itself that you become a good parent. And, but then you can draw upon broader resources and child psychology and all those kind of good things and the, 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 the gospel, you know, of, of, uh, about how to raise good children. And then you try to put the two together, your own experience and the more theoretical. And I'm sure you're a wonderful dad. And, uh, and, and they will teach depends you a lot. The they will, yeah, it depends on the day uh, for all of us. But, um, but in a sense, it's how we learn the most important things in life is by some such pedagogy and dynamic as I've just described. And as I think you see writ large in the public teaching of Jesus. 
Yeah. And by the way, his most frequent title, the most frequent description of his work in the uh, four Gospels is as teaching. Yeah. You were going to say, Brian. Well, I'm just saying, you know, and, and I think you need that sort of cycle that you've described of, you know, life to faith to life to even understand. Like I, on, on any given day, I don't know what kind of parent I'm becoming. And I think for me and maybe for a lot of others, it's very difficult for me to recognize the encounter with God in real time, especially in the midst of struggle, like we're going through. So I really identify with those disciples on the road to Emmaus who were unable to recognize the divine presence with them. And something that you just mentioned really um, piqued my interest, which was that it was the offering of hospitality that so often prompted the gift of recognition of, of yeah. Jesus, and particularly for those disciples. Yeah. So in this time, when so many of us are having a hard time recognizing God, recognizing the divine presence, what do you suppose are some of the offers of hospitality that we can be um, giving in order to recognize God among us? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and of course, um, um, I don't have I don't have a great a great easy answer to it. Um, I was struck by this morning's gospel reading uh, when I read it. It's from Matthew uh, chapter fourteen, verses twenty two to thirty six, and it's about them um, on the lake. That that he goes up the mountain to pray. They cross over the lake. Uh, the storm comes up, and he comes walking on the water to them. And uh, uh, he, he, they're terrified. But he says to them, do not be afraid. Uh, do not be afraid. And I think we somehow have to tune in to hear him saying that, that this is a dreadful time and um, a terribly difficult time, the pandemic of COVID-19, but then our deepened awareness of the dreadful pandemic of racism in our country and in our churches and our Catholic church all over the years, all over the history, we practiced slavery. The old Pope, medieval popes had galley slaves rowing them around the Mediterranean. We approved of slavery. The first time Catholicism officially condemned slavery was uh, 1965. Uh, a guardian of Spanish uh, from Second Vatican Council. And yet he says to us, somehow, do not be afraid. And Peter says, takes out of the water, walking, but then loses, loses faith. Um, and so this is why I'm retelling the story. He, he begins to lose faith. And as soon as he begins to lose faith, Peter begins to sink. And I think, I think that's what can happen to us as well. If we lose faith now, uh, I think we begin to sink. But it's very easy, as you say. It's very, it's very easy to lose faith. It's very difficult to hang on to faith. And, and how, did, how did Peter uh, hang on to his faith? He cried out, Lord, save me. And that was my prayer this morning. Lord, save me. Uh, because we can't save ourselves. Now, there are times when we're doing very well and when life is going swimmingly and everything's hunky-dory, we can get the feeling that I can save myself. 
So in some ways, it's in the midst of something like a pandemic um, to our health and, and uh, to our people. Um, it's in the midst of some sign of a crisis like this that I realize that I can't save myself. But I can cry out, Lord, save me. Um, and the text says, Jesus stretched out his hand and rescued Peter. Uh, and then he says to Peter, oh, Peter, you have little faith. You know, he chastises Peter for his lack of faith. Well, I, I'm on Peter's side. <laughs> I'm, I'm with Peter. I mean, it's all right to walk on water. And, of course, you know the old joke, uh, Jesus, walked, uh, Peter Peter got out and walked to the water because he knew where the rocks were. <laughs> but then he ran out of rocks, and yep. so he couldn't, he couldn't go any further. That's an Irish joke, I think. But, but, but the, point, the point is, poor Peter was sinking. He, he took out full of beans on the water and, and, and uh, saying, you know, I can, I can do this, blah, blah, blah. But uh, no, he, he lost, he, he, understandably, Peter began to doubt. Uh, and uh, with that, then, he, 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 but then he, the humility called out, you know, Lord, save me, save me. Uh, and uh, indeed, as the text says, Jesus stretched out his hand and rescued Peter. So it's not a glib, easy answer um, at all. And yet, it's our only hope yeah. is to cry out, uh, Lord, save me, because we're, we're drowning. And I mean, every day the news gets worse, my goodness, where uh, states that were over and done with, with the uh, pandemic, they thought, um, are, bad, are worse than ever. And uh, second waves and third waves, and who knows, I suppose, if we finally get a, 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 a vaccine, perhaps we move out of this, but probably not until then. So there'll be dreadful suffering. So in the midst of it, it's the, our only hope is to cry out, Lord, save me, we're drowning. And during this time, so many families have now been prompted to... Um to go deeper in forming the faith in our home church, which has always been the call. Um, yes. and, and that's, that's a great point, uh, Brian. Uh, uh, sorry, I cut you off. You go, uh, I was just, I was just going to ask, you know, one of the things that you've said about shared Christian praxis that I think is really applicable for the home church is these three facets of you got to learn about the faith, but in such a way that you learn from the faith yeah. and then learn into the faith. Yes. I wonder if you can um, explore that a little bit with us, those three facets. Yeah, and, and uh, it's not enough. You don't have to know about it, but it's not enough. But an awful lot of our teaching is almost satisfied when people kind of know, know about it. Uh, and I suppose there was a time when we deep Christian cultures and uh, the culture in a sense, brought us to faith. The village brought us to faith. Right. And it was enough formally to know about it. I would say that was the story of my own life. I learned the old catechism, you know, and I can still recite it. Who made the world? God made the world. Who is God? God is our Father in heaven. Why did God make you? God made me to know, love, and serve him in this life, be happy with him forever in the next one. On and on. The old Baltimore, the other, mine was the Manuth catechism, but the Manuth catechism, uh, the Baltimore catechism was actually borrowed from the Manuth catechism. <laughs> the Manuth catechism. An anecdote, anecdote, if you'll allow me, I saw a Please. question that somebody asked you about um, that I thought was so interesting about if you could retain one thing 
from Catholicism of the 1950s, what would it be? And I paused it and I said, okay, he's going to say something like Rogation Days or Ember Days or Meatless Fridays, but connected to justice somehow. But that's not what you said. What did I say? The Baltimore Catechism, in a way, in a way, yeah. in, way, in but, that you fall back on your basic training. But, but you see, it, it was enough. Yeah. When you were in a deeply spirit, when it was a deeply Christian village, everybody in my, now, you know, there were, there were sinners like the rest of us, and there weren't perfect people at all, but everybody went to Mass. I mean, you didn't dare miss Mass. Uh, there was one old fellow in the village who once in a while would try to miss Mass, and if he ever did, my mother would go down that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, with a bowl of soup. Yeah, Joe, you oh, must, oh, you must be sick. You must, you must be, be sick. sick. You must be sick. You weren't in church this morning. And then I had a deeply spirited Christian family. Uh, and we prayed the rosary, we all the devotions and sacred heart and the Christmas candle and all the rest of it. I mean, you could not grow up in that village and family without becoming, taking on the identity of being a Christian. You couldn't belong if you, uh, you couldn't not belong if you tried. Exactly. You exactly. So, yeah. so you, you learned about it through the catechism, but then you learned from it, from those around you, and you learned into it, really, with your, with your parents and siblings. Uh, and so when we had that kind of a Christian culture, um, then it was easy. It was, it was, in a sense, inevitable to become Christian, to become a Catholic Christian. Now that's all gone. That village is gone. There's now a four-lane highway to Dublin. And, uh, and the local church that used to be filled three times every Sunday uh, has one mass and it's three quarters empty. I was there last summer. Um, so it's a different time. And, and it's the, uh, Charles Taylor, one of the great uh, Catholic intellectuals of our time, said that, that, that what has happened really is that the conditions for faith, the social conditions for faith, have changed radically. And there are conditions that don't work in favor of faith. Now, and it's not bad. They're not bad conditions. Some of them are simply uh, improvements, advances in, in, um, in transportation and communication and medication. If I can give a very brief example, a brief, quick example. When I was about four years old in that village, I developed pneumonia. Now, my parents had already lost a little girl to pneumonia. I was the youngest of 10 children. And my father was away in Dublin. He was a politician. My mother, even if she had the car, she wasn't able to drive. Um, there, was no, there was no phone in rural Ireland. Now, this is only 60-something years ago. There was no phone in rural Ireland. Um, as I said, she had no car. It's, and so it was a winter's night. So to harness a, a pony and, and, uh, and a trap or a buggy to take the kid on a winter's night, to, it would probably kill him. Um, so what did she do? Well, she knelt down beside my bed and she told this story a thousand times. Um, so it became part of the catechesis of the family. She knelt down beside my bed and she told God that she wasn't going to leave there until my fever broke. Uh, I fell asleep, she fell asleep, we both woke up and my fever had broken. Now she always said it was a miracle. I've never decided one way or the other. The point I want to make is that her grandchildren would never do what her grandmother, what their grandmother did. Maybe one of the 29 would, maybe two of the 29 would. But the others, do you know what they do? They'd pop, the, they'd, A, they get on their cell phone and they'd call the doctor and the doctors had come in and they'd pop the kid in the SUV and they'd be in the village in 10 minutes and the kid would get a, a course of penicillin and we'd be running around, uh, running around healthy in a few days. In other words, we don't need God the way we used to, or so we could assume. 
And Tamara says it's the conditions that have changed to a point where God gets marginalized out of our out of our lives very easily. And we can forget. The great biblical warrant is don't forget. Well, it's very easy to forget. And when you forget, then you lose, you lose the faith. So there, there's something there about the conditions have changed. And uh, but now, how do we offset that? The only way to do it is to intentionally do what the old cultures did kind of by default or by habit. We have to have the, we still have, we have to return to the kind of, now maybe we don't, I don't sit down, I, I don't kneel down with my family and say the rosary. My parents did. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't get my wife and son to sit still that long. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I still say the rosary myself to fall asleep at night, but, but, but that we have to do something. Uh, we have to do something. We have to say grace before meals or share of it. And those families have to start filling in the gap because definitely just like our schools, our religious education programs in our parishes haven't been meeting. I have a little friend who is just so looking forward to making her first Holy Communion uh, this past May and her granny was coming from Florida and a great, great, God love her, the whole thing had to be called off. Uh, and there was no big celebration. But what do we do instead? Well, we'll have to be intentional. I think the families have to step up. And it doesn't mean that you get the textbook and start explaining the lesson to the child. I think you make sure that, hey, you give them a blessing at night, you give them a blessing in the morning. Uh, you have some practices of faith, symbols of faith. Uh, when Teddy first came home to us, we were an adoptive family. Um, I remember trying to figure out how would we furnish his room. And I remember Tigger was big at the time. We were going to put up a big Still photo. is. <laughs> Still is? Okay. I'm dating myself. And we put up a big thing of Tigger. I said, why don't we put up the Good Shepherd? And we put up a picture of the Good Shepherd. And it's my favorite, click it, clutching the, the lamb to his breast, not over the shoulders, but clutching to the breast, which, of course, Isaiah 43 uh, says that that's how God carries us at the breast. God, the good shepherd, carries us at the breast, because uh, that's where we hear the heartbeat of God. But we put up that, that picture. Now, I'm not saying it has worked miracles <laughs> at all. And yet he's paused at that picture many times. Mm. And we've talked about the care, the love, so that we can do this by the stuff we put up on our walls. But we have to be more intentional as families to share our faith. And especially now that our parish programs, in large part, at least in this part of the world, have, have, uh, have closed down, and understandably, rightly. So the parents will have to step up and be more intentional and, uh, and, and deliberate in uh, mediating the faith. Into our, into our children's lives. And I agree. I think, that, I think the key word there is intentionality and not recreation. So we don't have to go back in time because that, that culture does not exist now. And those things that worked for those cultures won't work today. So the idea of working in concert with the culture is the way that we're going to be effective in the, for example, home rituals, right? So this Holy Week, we, we're washing feet at home. We're having communion at home. And that's been beautiful and powerful for our kids. And sure. so that- That's, um, that's beautiful. That's marvelous. And I, I love the idea of that we fall back in times of crisis on our, our basic training. So I used to, to go on pastoral visits to the nursing home and 
there was one lady there who was in and out of consciousness, just in constant pain, not very responsive, right? But anything that I would say to her, she would just um, not really respond to. But until I, until I started praying the Lord's Prayer with her, and you yeah. could see the light bulb go on, yeah. right? And the, and the responses then came. And I think we see that often with music or you sure. know, these things that, um, that are ingrained in us. So, yeah. so what should... Do you think what should be those most basic tools that we're giving to our children as parents? Now that we have the opportunity, we're at home, we've got a captive audience, you know? So how are we training up those kids so that in times of crisis, they do have those things to fall back on? Well, I think what I got my great deal of what we've said already, uh, in, in many ways, giving them some formula or pattern of prayer, hmm. uh, I think is imperative. Um, I tell too many stories, Brian, I'm an Irishman. Um, I have a friend, who, a young woman, one of my students at Boston College, and her two, her, she and both of her sisters are, um, uh, are in ministry, like yourself. They're young lay women in ministry. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they'd become sisters probably. Now they're lay ecclesial ministers and doing wonderful work. And I said to her one day, what did your parents do? that guy gave all three of you, because I'd love to know, because I have a recalcitrant teenage son, and uh, <laughs> currently a, a, a Catholic atheist, but anyhow. Um, uh, so I said, what did your parents do that were so successful in raising three daughters that were deeply ensconced in their faith? And she started trying to think about, I think it was the CCD, we did a wonderful youth ministry program in our parish. And, uh, then, no, that was, so finally she said, by the way, she said, my, my, my mom is a single parent. She said every night, my mom said work two jobs uh, to raise us, three girls by herself. But she said every night before we went to bed, she'd take us in her arms. And each one of us got this moment. And she said it only took about 10, 15 seconds. But each, each night she'd take us in her arms and she'd say, God loves you. I love you. And Jesus loves you always. And she said, I think that's what did it. And, you know, in other words, it was one simple, sacred gesture. God loves you. I love you. And Jesus will always love you and be your best friend, you know. I mean, to give young people, little people, big people, that kind of confidence. After that, it flows. I mean, this is what Pope Francis means by evangelization. Evangelization is kind of turning them on to the idea that of Jesus. And Francis says now in this new directory, Jesus is the heart and soul of it all. Jesus the Christ, the risen Christ, Jesus, the Jesus of history, uh, the, the, the carpenter fellow from, from Nazareth, who was also the son of God, the, the divine presence in human history. Um, but bringing them to Jesus uh, in that kind of a sowing the seed. Now, catechesis, I always say evangelization is about sowing the seed. Catechesis is about growing growing the seed and the seed needs to be grown but sowing the seeds i think there's nobody can do that as effectively as parents can that's sowing the seed so now is a great time for for sowing seeds and the old biblical thing is the old gospel uh, thing is that you know are they in the new testament that some sow and i think that's the parents others water but it's always god who gives the increase in other words we're not we're not we're not responsible for the final outcome but we are to sow the seed. 
And I think that takes a lot of pressure off of parents because the idea is so daunting because as a parent in the modern world, you're filled with fear. I know. About all of these things that are outside of our control. And then add on top of it, I have to somehow get my kids to love and serve and believe in God. But I know. to hear you describe it as, as so simple and, and stress-free, it, it, simply that, you know, you set the stage for these things to happen. And that God is the one who accomplishes the work. Yeah. And I think that's, that's um, takes a weight off of my shoulders as a parent. Right? Yeah. So any, yeah. any words of hope, any, any things that you see um, the church moving in the future that you see as, as hopeful and positive? Well, well, be, well sure, there's all kinds of things, uh, Brian. And, and, and I do think we're entering into a new moment of awareness and, and repentance and commitment to change by way of the racism in our country. Um, I mean, we've all been kind of asleep at the switch, uh, generally speaking. Uh, I certainly, I have. Uh, now, you know, I think I'm very inclusive. I was always deeply respectful to my, for my, to my students of, of color, uh, the black and brown students. I, in fact, I went out of my way, but I haven't been fighting against racism the way I should have been. So I, I think there's a new moment for, for repentance, really, but then uh, recommitment uh, to, to, to doing that. So I think uh, that is going to be a gift, perhaps, out of our time, that maybe God uh, will draw the good that God will draw out of this. Now, God never caused this pandemic. Some people have often have had friends say, to me, oh, I think God is trying to teach us something. I say, no, um, God never sends suffering. Uh, but in the midst of suffering, God can draw good out of suffering. And maybe one of the goods that God will draw out of this suffering of this, this the pandemic of COVID-19 will, will be to get us to address the pandemic of racism in our country. Um, so so that, that's one hope I have. Then for the church itself, I think I've been logging on every Sunday. And I've also been uh, browsing around and visiting different uh, friends and where have you who are celebrating the liturgy. And... Um, it's interesting how many people are taking on agency uh, for their own faith in the home, as you, were, as you were talking about, and are beginning to read the scriptures uh, with, with their partner, with their family, with their friends, and share their reflections on it. So now I hunger for, the, for it to go back to, ma to Mass and to sing rather than being sung for or sung to uh, on this uh, blessed video uh, that I can, on the Zoom. That I, I get so frustrated when the fellow sings on and on and on and on, all five verses. I'm an Irish Catholic. Two verses is enough. Two right. verses. Even, even if it's a song about the Blessed Trinity, two verses, I always think is enough. <laughs> but, but there's a fellow in the church I log into, and I swear to goodness, he sang all the seven verses yesterday. And, and I did, he was a lovely singer, but I, I wanted to sing with him. But you can't, you, I feel like a fool sitting here looking at the, at the video, at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, not the, the, the uh, television or whatever, uh, my laptop, uh, you feel like a fool if you start singing out loud. So I want to go back to Mass desperately. And yet I've also learned, and maybe the church is learning, that we have to be agents of our own faith. And we can't be just dependent on, uh, on the ordained. Uh, we have to take initiatives ourselves and, uh, and be, be a priestly people according to our baptism. And uh, so I think it could, it could help us to open new conversations 
uh, even around uh, deep issues like uh, the nature of, of priesthood and uh, uh, what are priests for? Why do we, what's the nature of priesthood? What's the purpose of priesthood? And then what's the, what are the criteria? What are the gifts needed uh, for priesthood? Uh, and uh, how do we discern those? And how do we call people uh, to that service, to the community? So I think it, it could spark new conversations that, we, that I think we need to have. Dr. Thomas Groom from Boston College, thank you so much for the conversation this morning. It's been so enlightening. And uh, St. Pat's is sending all of their best uh, back east. We're going to send some of our heat, too. <laughs>